You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Well, welcome to the Hard Men Podcast. My name is Eric Kahn. I am your host. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about 10 strategies for fighting the culture war. I've had a lot of people message me. I've been chatting with a lot of my friends. And it seems like the consensus right now is what should Christians be doing in light of the fact that today, Joe Biden, that's right, sleepy Joe Biden, was inaugurated as president. You got at least 80 million Americans. Probably put myself in that camp. Not really sure that was a fair and free election. There's certainly doubt about that. And so, what should Christians be doing? We've said it's going to be the year of the Great Migration. People are fleeing churches, they're fleeing jobs, and they're trying to figure out what to be doing in the midst of all of this. And so what I want to do in today's show is I want to give you 10 key strategies and really principles for what you should be thinking through in the coming year. There's no easy answers, but as we find in Scripture, wise men have to think through difficult situations and they have to learn how to use really as like points on a compass, use principles to guide their decision making so that it can be more than just five minute decisions, but it can be long term decision making processes. And again, the beauty of ruling your life according to principle is that these principles are going to be timeless. They might be applied in different ways, but they're going to be timeless. It's not going to be dependent on who just got elected because you're going to be pursuing these things no matter what. But I want to apply them today in this show in a way that is, I think, going to be very helpful for you. So as we begin, I want to kind of take stock of of where we're at in this cultural moment and use that as a starting point, a jumping off point for where we're going to go with today's show. So we're almost through January. We're not even really through January all the way, but I, I really feel like the meme captures it well, right? This meme gets shared at the end of pretty much every January, the last two years especially, but you've seen it. It says January was a tough year, but we made it, right? It was a tough year, but we made it. We're not even through January, and uh, it's been a pretty excruciating month. We had a protest at the Capitol. If you're reading the liberal papers and the mass media, it was basically Omaha Beach at the Capitol. Uh, The leftists were throwing around words, words like insurrection and overthrow of the government. And there was, of course, a long month and a half at least of talk about election fraud and denials. And maybe like me, a lot of you, you just don't even know what to believe anymore at this point. It's been a year marked by the COVID shamdemic political turmoil, as I said, over the election. And by all accounts, it it does look to be like this cultural moment. We are Joe Exotic on the spectrum of trailer park back alley shady, right? The election looks fraudy. Our politicians look fraudulent. Like it all looks bad. Meanwhile, the leftist media pushes to keep the American public as distracted as humanly possible so that we can all just move on and accept our new socialist oligarchs and digitalista overlords, right? As I said, COVID was a virus so deadly, supposedly, that we had to kill entire industries and small businesses right up until the point, of course, when Joe was 
inaugurated, and then suddenly, well, we can ease back on those restrictions. COVID seems to be somehow coinciding with who gets elected president. Obviously, obviously, this issue and the shamdemic and everything going on in the last year has been politicized. It's obvious. But perhaps most concerning of all, and this is the one that really tipped people over the edge, I think, was the fact that the digital listas over at Twitter and Facebook, and by the way, along with a lot of other folks in the big tech sector, well, they were cracking down on anyone who uttered a word contrary to the current zeitgeist of queer race theory. Right? If you don't fall in line with the rejoicing over the fact that our new health minister is a dude dressing like a lady pretending to be a lady, I mean, come on. If you question this, well, you're out, right? You can't go to Google and say that if you work for the company. You can't go to corporate America and say that you oppose these things, right? It's going to cause massive problems for you. Meanwhile, if you question the election or you question why the right number of votes in the hundreds of thousands showed up in the middle of the night when no one was looking, surprise, surprise, or you question whether it's a good idea to allow social media outlets to censor the sitting president, right? You remember President Trump was kicked off Twitter and Facebook. They, mom and dad put him in, in Twitter and Facebook jail, and they said, he's too dangerous, right? That's where we're at in this cultural moment. The president can be put in Facebook jail because he says things that they don't like, right? Meanwhile, these socialist, capitalist, I'm using hyphenations, they're socialist, capitalist, organizations like Twitter and Facebook have monopolized the entire public discourse. They've been allowed to do that. And again, anyone who questions this narrative, well, you're a dangerous insurrectionist and you ought to be economically crushed and you ought to be socially canceled out of existence. Right, the point is the leftists just grab power by hook and by crook and the commie blitzkrieg, well, it's in full force. And it's important to add that many a prominent evangelical aided and abetted this satanic frenzy of statist tyranny. Right, Ron Burns is on Twitter right now gloating and rejoicing in the fact that decency has returned to the White House. So what if he's for theft and murder? of babies, he's so nice when he does it. And that's what we need. Status decorum. That's what we really need. Rod Dreher, same deal. Rejoicing Lecrae, once a Christian rapper, now openly rejoicing and saying we're on the right side of history. You might have seen it. I responded to Lecrae and I said, how does it feel to be on the wrong side of eternity though? Right? People in evangelicalism have sold us out. It's like the Scottish nobles in the movie Braveheart, right? They sold out their countrymen for a nice seat at the English table. It's always the same. It's a battle between elites and the working people. And so as God's people, this is the reality for us that we're waking up to in this new era, in this new world. The thermostat on hostility toward Christians, well, friends, it just got cranked up. Different forms of persecution are not only here to stay, but it's likely, it's very likely, that things are going to get more and not less intense in the coming days. 
But what I want to do today is give you 10 principles, because here's the bottom line. We can be dour and we can be sullen, but I don't think that's the way that God calls us to be. We should rejoice in all things, Paul says, including this moment. And I think if you see it rightly, this is actually a grand opportunity for the church to wake up. This is an opportunity for us to come out of our slumber, the slumber that's brought on by luxury and ease and poshness. And it's an opportunity for, to, for us to live as authentic Christians in the world. Many of us for the first time ever, right? This is an opportunity for the church to be purified. And it's an opportunity for us to actually take a step back formulize a strategy and start winning as Christians in this cultural fight. And the fight is at our front door. So we need to take that very seriously. Faithful Christians have a lot to consider as we think about strategies for resistance in 2021. That's why this episode, a lot of you are asking questions and rightly so about your churches. You're wondering how you can submit to men who have been statists and status shills for the last year who have forced you to put a mask on in order to come to worship or to register for the worship, how can you submit to those men? My answer in brief is that you should not, right? How can you be a part of a church which couldn't muster so much as a whimper in protest against the great shandemic of 2020? How can you be about a part of that church and expect to fight courageously in 2021, right? Others of you are thinking about whether to move states. I think that's a proper thought to be having at this time. You're thinking about where you're employed. Some corporations are worse than others, but ultimately all corporations represent a wage slave existence. Some of you are faced with a decision whether you need to stay and fight or whether you should flee your current community, church, or business. Again, all right and proper things to consider in this time period. So in this episode, I'm going to lay out several principles that should help guide your thinking about a strategic cultural warfare in the coming year. Again, as I said, ultimately to see this situation as an opportunity. It's hard. It's going to take strategy. We need to learn the art of cultural warfare. But I believe that we can and will formulate a path to victory. So number one point that I want to I bring to your attention is this. Repentance is about taking responsible action today. Responsible action today, and that's where we need to begin as a church, is with repentance. Judgment begins in the household of God, and this is the first and the most primary work that we need to be about. If we're honest and we should be. This is a time to be honest with ourselves. Many of us have been asleep at the wheel for decades, right? Some, you're going to vary in age of listeners on the show, right? But many of us have been asleep at the wheel. We should have seen a lot of this coming, but we ignored warning signs. We failed to act, and we spent way too much time in good conservative fashion bitching about the culture and not enough time with our sleeves rolled up doing something about it, right? That is the conservative disease. You rage and rage and rage and rage, but you don't get to work. And meanwhile, the leftists have been busy at work, right? We've known that big tech was up to no good. 
We saw this even in the 2016 election, which, for example, gave plenty of evidence that the sly digitalistas over at Facebook and Twitter, well, guess what? They were heavily censoring conservative messages in an effort to sway the election. And it was much more aggressive this time around because of the hatred for Donald Trump. So much of the establishment, I mean, absolutely loathed that man. He exposed them, right? He, he was threatening in a second term to do more, and so they hate him. And so we saw that they were even more aggressive on social media and among big tech this time around. And yet, what did we do as Christians? So many of us, we put all our creative eggs in their basket and their social media platforms on MailChimp and on their Squarespace servers. And we were really kind of foolish about this, right? We have to own this. We thought we could have good faith exchange with these pagans. We bought into the two kingdoms lie that it would be all right. That somehow neutrality and positive attitude from the world toward Christians would somehow continue to exist. We built networks of friends. We built our businesses, our livelihoods on platforms and in secular spaces, both digital and physical, that were quite openly hostile territory. Many of us have had no alternative plans until now. This is the moment we're waking up. This is the moment, as I said, where repentance begins. Now think about your church situations. Some of us have casually attended soft churches, and we've looked away as our pastor said something like, or You know, he supported something like what J.D. Greer, the SBC president, said when he said God whispers about homosexuality in Scripture. Maybe we didn't like it, but did we do anything about it? Or perhaps we ignored feminist remarks from our elders. We watched as their wives berated them, or other wives in the church did so as well. And we haplessly stopped going to worship when they told us to. I know many people were frustrated and rightly so with their elders, but what did they do about it? Did they go talk to their elder? Did they voice their complaints? Many times, no. The answer was we simply stopped going to church. And for these and other things, we have only ourselves to look in the mirror. The place to begin, as I said, is with repentance, and it is with repentance today. It's easy for us to look at that past record and say, you know, we've really failed, and we have as a church. But ultimately, repentance will take place today, not in the past, not in the future, but today. Before there can ever be change in our culture, there has to be change in the hearts and in the minds of God's people, and that begins with us. The fundamental problem is one of unregenerate hearts. We live in a nation of pagans who hate God, and many of those pagans who hate God are in our churches. Many even are teachers and preachers and pastors and leaders like Ross Moore at the ERLC. We need to confess the ways in which we have been tolerant of evil. Like good conservatives, we kept our heads down. We kept our faces covered because we feared, more than the fear of God, we feared the reprimand that we would get from the cancel culture and the Karens. Right? We simply abandoned, on the other hand, institutions to a complete leftward drift. We weren't there. We left. We let them have those institutions. All this while, we should have patiently and rather vocally said no to school boards and corporate boards 
and local authorities and sheriffs and health departments. We should have showed up in force as Christians and as Christian pastors, and we should have said no. We will not submit ourselves to this lawless decree. But instead, what did we do? We kept our heads down, we said nothing, and we allowed the leftists to take complete and utter control of our institutions and our cultural producing mechanisms. At this point, there's a Chinese proverb that I want you to remember. I remember it frequently, and it's very helpful. And it says this, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago, and the second best time is now. It kills me that that's a Chinese proverb, but it is very wise. The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago, and the second best time is now. You can't go back 20 years ago, but you can start repenting today. So on the one hand, this proverb is helpful because it means that we need to recognize that everything that you see today in the culture, right? everything you see and don't like about our snowflake, intersectionality, critical race culture, cancel culture, emotional softness, everything that we become, you don't like it, well, guess what? It's a result of decades of negligence by Christians in the church and in the culture, right? Culture is downstream from the church. The pulpit, Herman Melville said, leads the world. We have failed the world. Many of us have stood by and done nothing as leftists did what they promised and made a long, slow march through the institutions. In our idiotic pietism, Christians have actually worn their political and institutional indifference as a badge of honor. Look at us. We're so spiritually minded. We're completely unfazed by the godless overthrow of the institutions of our fathers in the faith. The men who spent generations and much of their own blood, sweat, and tears building, well, guess what? We're too spiritual to get involved in that. That's what John Piper's little letter before the election was all about. He was too pure and holy and spiritual to sully himself by voting for either one of these candidates. And in so doing, he was encouraging Christians to vote for Joe Biden and the Democrats, the party of death for babies, the party of government-sanctioned theft, and the party of transgender health department leaders, right? Mentally insane and unstable individuals who are overseeing the health of the American people. You, you can't even make this up. We're in a clown show, people. To put a very fine point on it, we as Christians, right? We as Christians are reaping what we and our fathers for generations have sown. We were not salt, right? We were not salt. And that is why our culture is a maggot-infested, rotting piece of putrid meat. That's why we have LGBT story time at the public library, right? Where were all the Christians to protest as these small things were happening. By the way, it was Donald Trump who got this one right. This is how social encroachment and cultural change happens, right? It was Donald Trump who said, look, if you let the neighbor steal your chickens, don't be mad when he rapes your daughter. But that's what we've done as a church. We let them get away with infraction, infraction, infraction. We do nothing. And now it comes to this cultural dumpster fire moment. And so the thing we have to do, Christian people, is we have to begin by repenting of our individual sins, our fatherly sins, our motherly sins, our generational sins, 
our negligence, and quite frankly, our pietistic stupidity. Right? We must repent of this pietistic faith, the kind that only flourishes, by the way, in posh luxury and in the obese self-indulgence of the American life. And we have to repent of our theologies, like the two kingdoms lie, that told us we should leave the culture to the secular, God-hating, purple-haired, transgender man-haters. As churches and as men, we need to repent of allowing these things to happen. Edmund Burke was the one who said it. All it takes for the proliferation of evil is for good men to do nothing. And we have done nothing. So the second thing is this. I want to point you to God's grace. Yes, we should be in Lamentations 3. We should be weeping and lamenting. God has brought covenant curses for those who have transgressed the covenant, which we obviously have. But God promises that no matter where you are, you can cry out to God. You can repent today. God promises you grace. That even after all that, God is now, even at this moment in our wicked, horrible, heinous, pedophilic culture, God is promising promising us a chance at repentance. He's giving us opportunity today to do that. We didn't plant well. We didn't water well. We didn't nourish well the tree of robust Christian culture and faith. We haven't done it for a long time in our culture, but we can start today. We can plant the seeds of culture building and faith today. And in his mercy, God does not ask us to live in constant regret about the, about the past. Take it seriously, yes. Repent, yes. But then this promise of refreshment comes to us from the gospel. God will refresh those who start repenting today. And then he calls us at that point to look forward to the day 50 years from now when after a long, slow, daily, plodding, faithful journey, we get to taste the beginnings of what faithfulness and blessing under the covenant look like. So that was point number one, repentance is for today, and that's where we need to begin with our work of cultural warfare. Repent. Number two, get your own household in order first. Get your own household in order first. Now, I'm not going to belabor this point because I've written about it. Uh, I've got an article on this on my website. That's ericcon.com, E-R-I-C-C-O-N-N.com. I've also podcasted earlier in this season on that very subject, but for now it's worth repeating, and it's worth repeating, by the way, at least once per day in your own life before you ever, ever, ever start to criticize the world, have a little humility, and set your own household in order first, right? So this is where we begin. We begin with repentance, and we begin with our own selves and our own households, right? If you're overweight, If you're in debt, if you're addicted to porn, if you're spending all your free time gaming or binge-watching Netflix, if you are lazy and hapless in your vocation, if you are neglecting family worship in your home, you're neglecting it as an individual, right? You're not reading your Bible. You're not praying. You're not disciplining your life according to the Word of God. You're not the young man who holds the Word of God in his heart. If that's not you... If you're not attending a solid church in which you submit to courageous elders, or if you can't control your own tongue, you're not in any shape to be an effective foot soldier for the culture war that is upon us. So this is where you need to begin. Start ordering one at a time these small areas of your own existence 
and then you will become of some use in this cultural war. Remember Proverbs 16.32, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit, he is better than he that taketh the city. So that was number two, get your own household in order. We'll move along quickly here to point number three. You need to find and you need to build your tribe, right? This is so essential. This is, this is the thought that consumes my days. How do you find your tribe? How do you find your people? Because let's face it, in the midst of a hostile culture, your best defense are men in a gang who can help you defend the perimeter, right? You cannot do that by yourself. You're an easy target for the state and for other people. Enemies of the church, you're an easy target if you're just lone wolfing it out by yourself. So in the book, Tribal Leadership, Tribal Leadership, the authors describe the five stages of organizations. The pivotal stages in that book are stages three and four. This is where the big epiphany and the big change happens in people's minds. Right? The shift is this. Between three and four, the shift is this. It's a change from a culture of I'm great in stage three to we're great in stage four. Right? Stage three organizations, groups, or tribes are filled with highly competent individuals, but all they're looking for is individual achievement. Right? This, this isn't the sucky company, by the way. This is a company full of a lot of talent, but it's like the old basketball all-star games when you had a ton of talent and your team would still lose because they didn't know how to play together as a team. It was all about the individual. Stage four, on the other hand, stage four organizations, well, they're full of those same individuals from group three, but they have learned to harness their skills for a collective tribal effort. And so the authors of the book point this out. Their language changes from I'm great to we're great. So what's the key difference between stage three and stage four organizations? Well, stage three organizations tend to produce limited short-term success, albeit with talented individuals, but individuals who do not leave a lasting impact, right? These are the guys whose offices are filled with their trophies, but the organization and the legacy that that organization leaves is almost non-existent. On the other hand, stage four organizations, also full of incredibly competent men, are those who have learned to embrace the change the world mentality. They somehow recognize that they are doing significant work that is shaping and changing people's lives for the better. It's changing culture and ultimately it's changing the world. Right? These stage four groups are the kind that build long-term institutions and leave generational legacies. You cannot do this as an individual. And that's exactly my point. Right? I sympathize with so many of the guys who listen to this show and so many of the people across America that I've, I've had the opportunity to talk to. You're disillusioned with the church, and I totally get that. But we as individuals can accomplish so much less as compared to when we are banded together with other competent men in a tribe fighting for the same purpose. Right? You could not have the Revolutionary War be successful if it was just a bunch of individuals who didn't know how to work together. Right? You had to have leaders in the country who brought people together and united the states. Right? You had to have 
leadership that knew how to build a tribe, and that tribe was built around the same culture. So I want to ask you a question. Do you really want to change the culture? Do you really want to win the culture war? Well, then you're going to have to build institutions with other men in order to leave that lasting legacy in the world around us. In other words, men, you need a tribe, right? Look at the course of human history. If you were Martin Luther by himself, the Reformation would have never happened and it would have died. But what happened? Luther had support from politicians. He had support from cities like Magdeburg. He had support from other men in other churches, right? He was able to build a tribal movement around a common and a shared language about changing the world. That's why it was successful, right? It's the difference between being Barry Sanders on the Detroit Lions and being Joe Montana with the 49ers. Montana was surrounded. Look at the team of the 80s from the 49ers. They were stacked, right? Montana was surrounded by an unbelievably talented coaching staff and by players who formed a cohesive tribe. How many Hall of Famers did you have on those teams? Right? They had a cohesive tribe with a shared vision for winning Super Bowls. And even to this day, the impact of the 49ers, well, it was monumental. It was great. It changed the game completely. West Coast offense, all that stuff, right? What about Barry Sanders? Barry's a great guy who's a great player. He did the best he could on a really crappy team, right? But Barry Sanders, despite his mega talent, he played on crappy teams. He broke personal records, but he retired early and he never won the big one, right? He didn't have the level of lasting impact that somebody like Joe Montana and the 49ers did. Right, I bring these things up because, look, there's an ongoing theme I've noticed among many brothers who've come awake to the cultural dumpster fire that we're trapped in. As I said before, many of them have become disillusioned, and rightly so, with the church. And they've decided that, like Jeremiah Johnson, alone in the woods, they're just going to be with their woman and their child. They're going to trap beaver, and they're just going to live in this peaceful existence, except... Jeremiah Johnson proves the point doesn't work. It doesn't work like that, right? It was all good until the Indians showed up and they butchered his wife and kid. And then he spent the rest of his life fighting Indians, right? This is kind of the point. You need a tribe. And that's the point of what I'm getting at. And, and I say this, believe me, I spent a decade getting burned by churches and ministry, getting burned by friends, people that you thought you could trust, people you thought that you would plant and root and grow with. So I, I certainly understand the temptation. We've been burned too, but here's what I always come back to, right? This is where every Christian must come back to. It's not about how I feel about the current state of the church today. It's about the fact that I look in the scripture and the scripture gives many, many reasons why going it solo is a bad, foolish, sinful decision, right? So I go to places like Hebrews 13. And Hebrews 13 is very, 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 very clear. It says that we are to submit to our leaders, right? That word for submission is that you're under their authority and they have a charge and a rule over your life to shepherd you, but also to rule. You have to submit to them. This implies, by the way, that there are going to be times, not all the time, but there are going to be times when you disagree and you need to follow their lead. 
right? It means that as men, we are called by God to, and here's the point, please hear me. We are called by God to be under the authority, submission, under the authority of pastors in a local context. Now, I want to be very clear about this. If your pastor is calling you to do something that's unbiblical, he's calling you to fear the state and, and not God, then you have an obligation. Just like we talked about in the last couple of shows with Matt Chuella about Romans 13, that o- obedience and authority is not unlimited. If they're asking you to do foolish, stupid, sinful things, like not come to church when there's clearly no threat of a virus, then you should not obey them. But that doesn't mean that we have the right then to just say, well, I'm not going to be under anyone's authority. I think that's a bad, foolish place to be. It does also mean this, and hear me carefully on this. It means that you should be very considerate about who you submit to. I'll tell you this. I am very, 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 very picky. Because look, that same passage in Hebrews 13 says, these are men that you ought to emulate. The leaders in your church, you ought to be able to take your son and point to your pastor and point to your elders and say, son, I want you to be like that man. 90% of the churches I've been to, I cannot say that. 90% of the churches I've been to, maybe that's a little extreme. I'm embarrassed to point to a leader and say, son, be like, well, okay, don't be like that. We'll try to make the best of this situation. Right? But here's, here's my point about tribalism. Right, We need to be under submission, and it's going to be hard work to find good men. We need men to oversee our souls. We need men, the text says, that are worthy of our imitation. And here's the other side of the coin. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that we need the one-anothering ministry of the church. The word used there is ecclesia, so important in 2020. Why? Because it means the gathered or assembled body of Christ, physical assembly. So you need a physical church that you go to where you are submitting to wise and courageous leaders worthy of imitation. And in verse 25 of chapter 10, it says that one of the key things that's supposed to be happening in context of the ecclesia is exhortation by the body. Exhortation by the body or encouragement, right? This is what has been called the one anothering ministry of the body, not just the pastor. You need to find a church where they're encouraging you and exhorting you on a daily basis. By the way, the word here is parakaleo. I've always loved this word because you'll see in it the word paraclete, right? Same root word that you have for the Holy Spirit or the helper in John's gospel. But the word literally means to get up close and personal in someone's life. You need friends in your life who know how to get in your comfort zone and make you uncomfortable. Right? The writer to Hebrews will say to spur one another on to love and good works. Like a thorn in your flesh. A good friend is somebody who won't let you quit. You're ready to give up right before the finish line and your friend is jabbing you in the side with a needle so that you won't quit. That's the kind of men you need in your life. Right? Again, the the condition of the church is sad, but the word of God is clear. And this is what I always come back to. So that means I have to keep looking for my tribe. Right, I have to keep searching and being faithful as much as I can to obey this passage. And here's what I found. I started reaching out to people on Twitter. I started sharing my thoughts. I, and look, how many people in America are gung-ho about patriarchy, masculinity, biblical sexuality? Well, what I found through Twitter, more than you would think, actually, 
And through that, I was able to connect with people. And so going through this process, even now of like, okay, well, I got some guys. How are we going to figure out where the tribe is? Again, it's hard work, but you can do it. And I want to encourage you, man. You can do it and you must do it. Right? Again, think about Hebrews chapter 10 and 13. Those are warning passages. And they're saying without the body, without submission to leadership, you will ruin your soul for all eternity. Right? That's how important it is to have a tribe, good leaders and good people around you to exhort and encourage you. So here, here's kind of my charge to you. Like if there's one thing that's huge in your life in 2021, you need to make sure that you have your tribe. We need courageous men leading us and we need courageous men fighting alongside us. If we do not have a strong tribe, we make an easy target for the enemy and the state and we severely limit the lasting impact of our legacy. So I want, I want, I'll close this section, point number three, with this. I want you to keep a few things in mind. Number one, you can be discouraged by the fact that good friends and leaders are hard to find. But you should be encouraged because Scripture says a good friend is like a precious jewel, meaning he's hard to find. They're out there. They're real. Diamonds exist, but they're not a dime a dozen. So when you don't find a good friend or a man of competence under every rock, don't get discouraged. That's normative. Right? Good men of competence and virtue are rare, but they're not non-existent. The second thing I would say is this. Don't be shocked that most pastors are velvet-tongued invertebrates. Uncommon men of excellent virtue, well, they're uncommon. Right? The heroes in Greek culture, well, they were heroes because they were so rare. Right? So don't expect to find a great pastor at every church. When you go to the church and the guy is terrible, you should say, well, that's, yeah, I got to keep looking. So the final thing it means is that we need to change our expectations. Great men are uncommon. It's going to take tremendous effort in many cases, especially in our culture, to find them. But don't lose heart. You can find them. It's worth the painstaking journey. You should keep your standards high on what friendship is. Search until you find. This is the point. Good things will seldom come easily or accidentally. So you need to be a man in pursuit of other great men. So when I ask you men this question, who is your tribe? How would you know? A few things as we depart this point. Number one, you should have a shared vision, right? There should be a shared vision with this tribe, which is, I don't know, let's call it 75 to 85% alignment on the core principles. They should have the same principles and you should be able to write your principles down. They write theirs down and most of it lines up, right? You should have complementary skill sets, right? These should be men, right? Just think about a survival type situation. Well, I want that guy. He knows how to fix things, but that guy also knows how to negotiate with people. And this person's a great leader. So he knows how to unify the tribe together, right? You don't want everybody to be just like you. And then you're looking for men who are highly competent right? They have skills. They're good at what they do. You like being around them because they get things done. They're men of action. Paul says the kingdom of God is not about talk. It's about action. And so you want to find people who are highly skilled, highly competent, and they know how to get stuff done. And then finally, I would say this. How do you know it's your tribe? Well, listen to the language that people use in the tribe. Maybe as you're building it, maybe this tribe is one you're joining and it already exists. But the language should not be me language. It should not be about one public figure who's all about making his image, platform, 
book deals, whatever, great. Right? It should be about the team. It should be about the we. It should be about culture building and a culture that can be exported and can change the world. Right? This is what the three strands in Ecclesiastes chapter four is about. Individual strands are not very strong. You put them together and they get exponentially stronger. And this is what your tribe will do for you. And it's the essential component of fighting the culture war because it's how you establish a culture to fight with. So point number four, Christians need to establish and cultivate what I will call own space. I'm borrowing a term from Aaron Wren, and he really gets his term from the book Bronze Age Mindset. What Aaron argues about own space is that Christians, well, we've done a pretty awful job of cultivating own space. Twitter is a great example of what is not own space, right? Christians are trying to advance their idea or their business on enemy controlled platforms. And that's simply what it means. You do not own the space. Therefore, you are not the master of your space, but you're working for someone else on their space. Here's the problem you can't build an empire on leased land. So in turn, Christians need to follow the lead of men like Andrew Torba, right? Many of you have become familiar with his name of late because Andrew is the builder of the social platform Gab, which has been adding something like a million new uh, members every, every day, which is just crazy. Andrew has attracted the attention of many folks who were kicked off Parler, they were kicked off Twitter, and they were kicked off Facebook. It's interesting, too, because the comparison with Parler, well, what happened? Parler was a conservative so-called social media outlet. But where were they hosting their app? Well, it was hosted on Amazon's AWS servers. So Amazon and Apple got together and they summarily got rid of Parler. No shock there. This is what happens when we operate on someone else's space. By the way, if you haven't read up on it, Gab's founder, Andrew Torba, his story is quite fascinating. He came from a Silicon Valley background. He was conservative and disgusted by the leftism that he saw. He eventually, in 2018, would be doing work on Gab, and he was deplatformed. Now, he could have given up at this point, but what did Torba do? Himself a Christian, he's quoting David Chilton and post-mill theology on Gab, which is awesome. But what did Torba do? Well, he went and he bought his own servers and he slowly built as best he could a different social media platform on his own own space. And that's the point. So where is Gab today? Well, the commies, as he calls them, are trying to get rid of Torba and Gab, but they can't do it. Why? Because he owns his own servers. And so now it's, it's forced the, the digitalistas to up their ante. And now they're going after Spectrum and internet providers and saying, why would you provide internet to Andrew Torba? But you see what happens. If you own your own space, you're much more difficult to cancel. And so Christians should follow the lead of people like Torba. We need to have our own space. Again, the lesson is simple. If you own your own space, you're virtually uncancelable. And this kind of anti-fragility is exactly what we're after as men. Now, back to Aaron Wren and his newsletter. He points to Moscow, Idaho, Doug Wilson, and Christchurch as a case study that Christians should look at for how their own space 
can't easily be canceled. I'd encourage you to read that, and we'll provide links to the newsletter in the show notes. But to summarize what Ren says, we need to be buying real estate. We need to be building our own houses, developing and establishing our own businesses, filling local governments with our best people. This is what they're doing in Moscow, and this is why they can't easily be canceled. As Christchurch has demonstrated, Christians need more canon presses, right? Means of cultural production. Well, you don't like our books? We'll just print them ourselves on our own printing press. And then we'll mail them and send them to whoever wants to buy them on our website, which is on our own servers, and on our app, which is on our own servers, right? They've thought through this issue of own space. And I think Doug and Moscow are particularly helpful because they were way ahead of the rest of us on this. Why? Because they were at campus there in Moscow, right? They were there uh, debating. They were there talking about gender issues a long time ago. And they saw the hostility and they saw the intolerance that was coming their way from the tolerance movement. And so we can learn from them. It's only going to get worse. And so we as Christians need to really be thinking about owned space. Now, here's something to keep in mind. This isn't the time for Christians to run and hide. Instead, we should be building websites on our own servers. We should develop our own Patreon-style software and things like it. We should be printing our own books. We should be producing our own entertainment. And we should be writing our own music. And by the way, if you're a patron of that stuff, you should be paying for it. Right? If you're tired of Disney and its feminism and every single Star Wars movie, well, then you're going to have to fork over your money to something that's a lot more worthwhile. It means that we need to vote with our dollars and we need to invest heavily in Christians who are doing this good work. All right, buy their books, engage on their entertainment or social media platforms, and support them with money where you are able to do so. It's important for us to think as Christians, as we think about own space, how we can win in tangible ways. Again, you can't always have own space, say, in downtown New York City. It's probably out of most of our price ranges. But you can find own space on the cheap in small rural places. You can buy foreclosed houses in rundown neighborhoods and fill them with Christians and rebuild them and make them beautiful again. You can do that. What we need most of all as we think about own spaces is own spaces that are filled with Christians whose theology is coming out of their fingertips. Number five, we need to adopt an attitude of plunder toward corporate institutions and platforms. We need to recognize what is rented space, but also that there is time when we have to work in those rented spaces. As long as we have the right mindset, it can do us much good, right? We still may frequent a corporation for some time in our life, especially when we're young and especially when we need to gain skill sets, but we should never become reliant upon them. Instead, as I said, we should adopt a posture of plunder toward them. I'll give two examples. First, if you work for corporate America, realize this, you're a wage slave. Now, that's not my opinion, that's a fact. You don't own your own productive property, i.e. your own own space that can produce income for you. And instead, you're just working someone else's land for a wage, and generally they're paying you for your time, not a finished product. This means your freedoms are limited, if non-existent. 
and you'll need to comply by their ever left-leaning woke force mandates. Yes, I said that, the woke force, not the workforce. That's what capitalist wokest culture is all about. Look at the COVID pandemic. Who's enforcing the mask orders? Who's enforcing all the LGBT group therapy sessions? Well, corporations. Working for the institutions of woke capitalism can be an opportunity for plunder, however. You can gain skills, you can gain competencies, and you can gain the experience needed to start your own side hustle, which could then turn into your own freelance business, in which case you save your money and you can invest and buy your own entrepreneurial capital and productive property. In other words, you can plunder them. Just know that you're operating covertly on enemy territory and that ultimately your goal is to get out. And I want to encourage men, this is going to be hard work, right? When you're starting from zero, it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of sweat and tears. I know, you know, working multiple jobs, late nights, heavy hours, heavy workload. But ultimately, we believe that it will pay off and that our children will experience something better. My goal is to build businesses that my sons can work at and to help other men in the church start their own businesses where they can create their own culture in the workplace that honors God. Now, the other example of plunder that I'll point to is the way that I use Twitter and Facebook. I have accounts there, I've planted my flags there, and I don't plan to leave until they ban me. But in the meantime, I'm plundering them of like-minded folks. I'm plundering them of future proselytes, friends, and I'm turning those people into real relationships. I'm turning them into email lists. I'm turning them into patrons. And ultimately, I'm including them in part of my tribe. So this is a way that you can plunder even wicked places like social media. Number six, Christians need a doctrine of the lesser magistrates. Now, if you haven't already done so, I would encourage you to check out Matt Truella's book, and you can check out the conversation that I had with Matt Truella in a recent episode of the podcast. We, of course, did talk about his book, which is titled The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates. It's a very helpful book and discussion in this time period because we as Christians need to learn the historic position of resistance to tyrants, as well as what is proper authority in the realm of civil magistrates, family, and church institutions. The problem today is that the church is statist to the core. The whole shamdemic situation revealed that for much of the church, we simply haven't developed robust theologies of interacting with a world that is hostile to the faith. And in many reform circles, the virus situation revealed that many of us have never taken our historical faith for so much as a drive around the block in the real world. Many of those principles, well, they've been sitting on the shelf collecting dust for some time, and that's got to change. Wear a mask because we need to love our neighbor, well, that statement reveals just how unthinking and shallow our pietistic drivel today really is in evangelicalism, especially when it's compared to our Christian forefathers, men like Luther and Knox or the prophet Daniel, men who had dynamically worked out the truth and had lived it. Defying tyrants is obedience to God. We need to read Matt Truella's book, as I said, The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates. And we need to learn how, as pastors, elders, and churchmen, we can be meeting with real people. Yes, real people. We can be meeting with local officials to plead with them so that they institute and govern righteously according to the law of God. We should know our sheriffs. 
We should frequent, especially as pastors, their offices. We should know our police chiefs, and we should know city council members. Right? There's no reason that an elected sheriff, you can't call him up and say, I'd like to meet with you. Right? You elected the guy, go meet with him. Go talk to him about what the law of God requires from his office and what his delegated authority means. Show up to city council meetings and weigh in according to the truth of Scripture. And even more than these things, these magistrates should know us, both as pillars of the community and also a thorn in their side when they seek to promote wicked and unjust laws. Again, we need to recover a practical doctrine of the lesser magistrates. Number seven, tactical retreats put us in a better position to fight back. Ultimately, many of us are on the ropes right now, to use a boxing metaphor. And there's wisdom to tactical retreats, right? It's like getting off the ropes as a boxer so you can get in a better position to attack. That is ultimately the goal of a retreat, is so that we can reform our lines and we can have a better attack strategy on enemy lines the next time around. The thing we have to avoid, though, is retreating at all times simply for the sake of retreating. Again, Aaron Wren talks about this concept in one of his masculinist newsletters. And in particular, when you think about conservatism, right, many of the, the founders of conservatism, even modern conservatism like Richard Kirk, right, he's famous for saying, well, as a conservative, I always expected to lose, right? That's not the kind of mindset that we want to cultivate as Christians. We believe that God has called us to take dominion. We believe that he's given us a great commission. And we believe by the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel, he will help us to fill the earth with his glory from sea to sea. There really are situations, however, in which if you stay on the ropes, well, you're going to get your butt kicked, right? Many of us have had to get out of bad churches, and that's what I mean. You're not in a position to fight well and to make progress in your culture or community when you're a part of a weak, uncourageous, cowardly church led by cowardly men. It's simply not going to happen. As Doug Wilson says, you can't fight culture with nothing. You have to fight a culture war with culture, which means that you need to first and foremost find your tribe and a healthy, thriving culture that can affect the world around it. If you don't have that, chances of you being effective in the fight for the culture war are very unlikely. So again, this means you need to find men who can help you build or have already created a thriving and magnetic culture that has power to transform. Now, every situation is different. I understand many of you will be coming from very different backgrounds, but here are a few key things I think you should keep in mind and consider when thinking about whether or not you should stay or leave your church. We'll start with the easy ones. Number one is your church closed. Right? If your church is still closed after everything that we now know about the shamdemic and the virus and how it was politicized and how it really wasn't that bad for most people, if your church is still closed, you need to find a new church, bro. Like, if that's your church, you, you need to leave. You've already left. They've kicked you out. They don't want you. And you need to find a different place to worship with people who are open. So, for many people in different parts of the country, that is rule number one is your church open? The second thing I would look at is how did they respond and how are they responding now to the mask mandates? 
Now, many churches early on, they screwed up and they admitted it. And they said, you know what? This was statism from the beginning. We didn't see it that way in the beginning, but we changed. Right? John MacArthur did the courageous thing and he started challenging the executive orders and the illegality of them. Right? But his church was, you know, they closed in the beginning. They had masks. Right? But they sort of repented. You know, they changed their tune and they righted the ship. So I'm not saying that at no point along the way did your pastor, elder, or church fail on the mask issue. But like if they're still wearing masks, if they're still requiring people to register for service, man, you're, you know, you're in a bad situation. Like you can talk to those guys if they're willing to hear you, but if they don't change, I think you need to find a different church, right? Here's, here's the deal. If you're in a church and they're so uncourageous, they're so cowardly and spineless that they won't oppose the government over a piece of cloth that is worn on the face, or if they're trying to regulate worship, which they have no right to do, according to the Constitution, if they're not willing to be courageous on that, they're not going to be the people who stand by you when the thought police come marching to your front door, right? Those people are not going to have your back. So you should ask yourself, is my church towing the state line? Are they fearing the state? Are they fearing man? Or are they fearing God? If you gave them a copy of the Doctrinal Lesser Magistrates, would they even read it? This gets to the, really the second question that I would ask. You know, as you're thinking about, should I stay, should I go? How much horsepower do you reasonably have in your church? Now, I'll be honest. Generally speaking, if a guy is gung-ho to leave, sometimes I want to say, hey, caution to the wind. You should at least talk to the people before you leave. Have you even talked to your elders? Many people haven't. So it's like, well, if you have an opportunity, you should go do that. But on the other hand, many people who stay, I think, do so naively. It's like, bro, you've been in this church for 10 years, and you've been trying to get the pastor to hear you, and he won't hear you, and he's not hearing you on this. Uh, you should probably move on and try and find a place where people are a little bit more like-minded and share the same convictions, as we said before. That's, that's a key component of your tribe. So again, it comes back to this issue. How much horsepower do you have? If you're in a megachurch of 5,000 people and the pastor does not even know your name, well, realistically, you don't really have a lot of horsepower at all. So that's another question I would ask. Do you have the, the leadership's ear? Like, will the elders and the deacons, will they sit down with you? Would they actually read other things? Will they consider what you have to say? If they will, then I would go for it and I would talk to them. Again, if you're, if you're a deacon in the church, if you're an elder and the pastor's willing to hear you, you know, that's a situation where you might want to just teach. You might want to see what happens, pray for these men, see if, the, if God's not doing something. And then that, that really brings us to the third thing I'll say. You really have to assess the likelihood of change. And unfortunately, I think in a lot of situations, people are naive about this. Like, they don't want to believe what their eyes tell them because it's more comfortable to stay. But again, you just have to be very honest with yourself. What, are, what is the likelihood? What is this person's action showing me? Do they actually want to change? Because a lot of people, to keep you around, will make you believe that they, they want to change. Right? You see this all the time in counseling. Um, and that's really part of the counseling process is determining, does this person even want to change? And once I've figured out through concrete behavior that they don't want to change, I immediately cut that relationship off and say, until you're willing to be repentant, um, there's really not a lot that I can, can do for you. And we have to do the same thing with our churches. 
and the tribes that we're a part of? Do these people actually want the culture uh, that you're advocating? And it's, it's so important right now, right? Because persecution is coming. So it's no longer a matter of just convenience and taste. It's a matter of, hey, my family's, you know, spiritual, eternal well-being is at stake here. So you really need to think through those issues. Again, another question I would ask along this line in the likelihood of change is, do you have critical mass of men who can help you establish change? You really are going to have a very hard time, especially if you're not the pastor, you're not a leader. But even if you are, um, you're going to have a very hard time if you're just pushing against people that do not want to change. And then the final thing, again, I would say is take an assessment of what the culture of the existing church, tribe, or group organization is like. And then you need to figure out if it really is changeable, right? If you share some of your vision with other people, do they hate it? Do they resist it? You know, or, or are they on board with it? And that's going to determine whether or not I think you should stay. That should certainly factor into your decision. Number eight, number eight point, and we're coming to an end here, I promise. You need to develop a 50-year plan. As my friend and pastor Dan Burkholder says, if you want to fight well, you need to build things that last, right? So we need to be guided by principles that are long-lasting. We need to have more than just a five-year plan. And my friend Dan always points to Arthur Guinness, right? You know the story? In 1759, way back when, a man took out a lease, this is Arthur Guinness, on a brewery and started his own business. He took out the lease for 9,000 years and 45 pounds a year. It's pretty smart. Arthur Guinness knew that the kingdom of God was here and he fought to build things that lasted. So we need to be thinking along the same lines. Again, 50-year plans, not five-year plans, not one-year plans, not just, hey, what are my goals for 2021, but where do I want to be in five years? Where do I want the culture to be in 50? What kind of legacy do I want to leave among my family, church, community, children, etc.? Right? This is the way that you build anti-fragility in a world that is volatile and constantly changing. You moor your ship with principles that endure the test of time. They're good in any era, right? So for me and my family, these are the things that I've set as sort of life goals. Number one, I want to have an anti-fragile home, the kind of home that can weather storms. We own our own productive property. We're out of debt, right? We're robust in our ability to handle adversity. So we have an anti-fragile home. Again, that's a principle that's good in any era. Number two, we leave a legacy of faith to our children and to my sons. I want my progeny to know dad was a faithful, courageous man who had a spine of steel and he stood up for what he believed and he had a chest and he had a brain and he had calloused hands. He knew how to work and how to think and to build culture. And that's what I want my children to remember and to have and to be able to pass on, right? That's good in any era. I want to establish Christian culture, both in my family and to be a part of a Christian culture that is thriving, growing, and dynamic. I want it to be able to be productive in changing the people who are there, and I want it to be able to be exported so that it can change other places. If you think these cultures don't exist, go to Moscow, Idaho. I encourage you to do that. Go to Grace Agenda. Go spend time with their families, right? You go to the pastor's houses and you have dinner and everybody's hands are raised and they're singing the doxology and people are filled with joy and they're holding babies and you walk away and you say, I want that, right? That's what magnetic culture 
is like, and we should seek as much as we can to build it and be a part of it and export it. Fourth, I want to have my own space, right? Spaces that I own. I want to have my own business. I want to pay off my house so that I'm less cancelable, right? I'm more anti-fragile. This goes back to the debt and anti-fragile home, but they're connected. I want to have my own land. I want to be able to produce my own food. Why? Because you're less cancelable. You're less fragile, and that's good for men to be. And that ties in with the last point for family vision, which is to pass on a generational wealth to my offspring. This means productive property, business, working capital, etc., as well as durable, not fiat, but durable wealth, land, things that have always throughout the history of the world retained their value, gold, silver, etc. Number nine, I want to build a library of hard copies, and I would encourage you to do the same thing as well, to take ownership of your learning. Men should be well-learned, especially in this age, we need to be reading old books and the kind of books that would get you canceled, right? You need to be thinking like people thought a long time ago. You need to have a set, right? You need to have a nice set of the Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. That should be required reading in your family. I can foresee a day when that book will not be allowed. That's kind of book that you need to have in your library. I would be getting away, by the way, from digital copies at all costs and moving toward analog. Why? Because it's a lot harder for them to come to your house and take the book off your shelf. It's pretty easy to delete it off your Kindle. Right? Kindle libraries were great for a time until you realized that Amazon was pulling books. Right? That's not a good place to be in. So I'd encourage you, build real physical libraries. Right? Buy books like the Google Archipelago. Right? That's another good book. You can buy that off Amazon now, but will you be able to next year? I don't know. Among other things, your library should contain books that would get you arrested, deplatformed, canceled, fired, doxxed, or put under discipline by a gospel coalition church. More than ever, we need books that uproot, mock, question, and ridicule the present totalitarian leftist culture controlled by the critically racist Karens. Right? That will often mean, too, that reading older books is a good medicine for our times because while they have blind spots, they do not have our blind spots. So they help us see more correctly. I would encourage you, this is something that I've done recently in my home, is develop a monthly book budget so that you can acquire literature. You can find used books at good places. You can also buy new. Whatever you have to do, build a budget, buy the books, and build your library. You want to start, I think, with cornerstone books, pillars of the Christian faith, pillars of good thinking about culture building, right? You want to start with these foundational works. Start with just Google, Google, DuckDuckGo it, whatever you want to do. Look up the great books, right? You can find a list of like 50 to 100 of the great books in all culture. Start building that collection. And in an upcoming episode, I'll, I'll start to list out some of my top books as well. Follow people like Canon Press. You can go to their website, sign up for the app, whatever. They're going to have some great books to recommend as well. Start building those libraries out. You should own books like Rules for Reformers by Doug Wilson. Vital reading in a time like this. I read that book at least once a year. Rules for Reformers. We'll include that in the show notes. And then again, as I mentioned before, Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates. 
Now, 10th, I want you to remember your tools. Your tools, reformers and men, is a hammer and not a gas can, right? We are reformers and not revolutionaries, which means we are fundamentally not riotous looters throwing Molotov cocktails, but we are those seeking to rebuild in the ruins of the culture. We're seeking to rebuild our households, our churches, our businesses, and our local places and institutions. The second thing I would say is that you need to rely on a principle of productivity, or what I've called the art of slow plotting. We need to think in generations, not in five minutes. And so the things that we build will take a long time to build, but they'll also last a lot longer as well. We should, by the way, be building these things with our tribe because we can get more done and we can be more effective. Finally, and I'll say this in closing, we need to rejoice. If you get discouraged, read Paul's letter to the Philippian church. Even these things, Paul said, including him being in prison, including men preaching in a vindictive way, all of it, Paul said, was working for the furtherance of the gospel. And so Paul called them and us to rejoice in all things, including this crazy cultural moment. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Hardman Podcast. I want to give a special shout out to all of our Patreon supporters. We seem to be adding more and more by the day. As we talked about in this episode, it is so important that you support good Christian work. And so I'd encourage you, if you've been benefited and blessed by this show, consider signing up as a Patreon supporter, again, to further the work that we're doing. We're writing books, writing a field manual for men, and we're producing great podcast content that is edifying and nourishing for you and for the church. I would encourage you too, if you've enjoyed the show, you can go on whatever outlet, but especially Apple Podcasts, you can like the show, give it five stars, and also leave a review. That's very helpful in getting the word out about our show. As always, we appreciate all of our listeners and supporters. Until next time, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men.